everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Ingrid Egley. She's a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law. Welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, um, so you... I had read an article that you had done on the landmark decision of uh, Padilla versus Kentucky. Uh, can can you tell us a little bit about that and what that decision entailed? Yeah, happy to tell you about that. Um, so the Padilla decision was a Supreme Court decision in 2010. Um, and it involved um, Mr. Jose Padilla. And I think his case, you know, just the facts of his case really speaks um, volumes as to the entire issue. Uh, Mr. Padilla was a lawful permanent resident of the United States. He lived in the United States for over four decades as a, as a lawful permanent resident. He'd served honorably in the United States military. Um, but yet when he found himself um, charged with transportation of marijuana, um, you know, he went and asked his lawyer, you know, what, um, you know, what I care about is whether I'll be deported, right, if I plead guilty to this charge. And his his public defender, who wasn't an immigration lawyer, uh, told him, um, don't worry about it. You've been, you've been in the United States for so long um, that you don't have to worry about your immigration status. And based on that advice, he took the guilty plea um, and you know, unbeknownst to him, it was actually an automatic um, deportation. This is what's known as an aggravated felony. It's really the worst possible category of crime under the immigration law. Um, and so therefore he was subject to automatic deportation. Now, had his lawyer given him accurate and specific advice to that question, like, yes, you will be deported if you plead to this, then he could have made different decisions. He could have decided to take the case to trial. He could have insisted that his attorney continued to try to navigate a plea um, with the prosecution that would avoid that deportation consequence. Um, but those options were taken away from him because he was given this incorrect, um, this incorrect answer to that really crucial question about will this lead to my deportation. And, and so this is now like one of those seminal um, you know, Supreme Court decisions, and, and what kind of impact has it had? Yeah, well, what the Supreme Court found, it's a, in a decision in 2010, Padilla versus Kentucky, um, that the Sixth Amendment required counsel um, that represents someone in a criminal case 
to inform their client of any adverse immigration consequences that can flow from the criminal plea. Um, and in doing so, the court recognized, you know, that um, deportation is in fact um, intertwined with the criminal process. The court wrote intimately related to the criminal process. Uh, and when a deportation consequence is clear, as it is in the case of Mr. Mr. Padilla's um, situation, um, then defense counsel has an equally um, clear duty to provide accurate and correct advice as to that deportation consequence. Um, and the court found this was a Sixth Amendment um, obligation to provide that affirmative correct, um, correct advice, and that absent getting that um, advice, someone could bring a, a claim for ineffective assistance of counsel. That's kind of interesting because it's a 2010 decision, but it seemed like it foreshadowed a whole lot about the next decade and a half. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, even even at the time um, that the decision came down, you know, immigration and um, consequences were already deeply intertwined with um, deportation. They have been historically, and then in particular in 1996, there was a set of new federal laws um, that even further um, expanded the categories of crime that can lead to automatic deportation, including expanding that category of aggravated felony, um, and took away a lot of the avenues that were previously available for people to receive relief from deportation. Um, and since that time, we've had increasing um, sort of structural connection between the immigration and criminal legal system, where as a matter of practice and enforcement, there's been more reliance on contacts with the criminal legal system that really result in the actual deportation. So we saw that under Obama with the creation of programs like the Secure Communities Program that scans fingerprints of individuals when they're arrested in local custody, and then uses that to um, transfer people over into into immigration custody um, after they've been arrested or after they've served a criminal sentence. That's something that received a lot of pushback from local communities around the country. And then under the Trump administration, we saw sort of the removal of, you know, sort of all boundaries of discretion, making everyone a priority for possible deportation. But still, if you look at in practice who was targeted, most of the referrals came through the criminal legal system. So the ability to have you know, at the front end, a lawyer there who can give that accurate and correct advice is crucial. And the court also, you know, stressed that lawyers who understand immigration consequences as they're, as they're required to do under the Constitution can also, as they said, bargain creatively with the prosecution. It can be in the interest of the prosecution as well to resolve cases by plea bargain and allow people to enter into alternative pleas that are sort of equal of, of equal seriousness and may even result in the same or a more serious sentence, but that don't carry the additional double punishment of deportation. So can you explain that for people that might not understand how that all works? Because, you know, even somebody like me who follows this closely isn't quite clear in my mind what is and isn't. Right. So, um, I mean, the immigration law is notoriously uh, complex, but for example, um, someone might um, be charged with a few different crimes and maybe one of those crimes um, 
is an aggravate qualifies it as an aggravated felony and and would result in mandatory uh, deportation. In that case, maybe the prosecutor just wants the person to plead will offer the person to plead guilty just to one of maybe three charges. Right, is typically the the case. Maybe you don't plead guilty to everything. It's it's a it's a negotiation. Um, a lawyer who understands deportation consequences could help the client to. Um, understand which one to propose, right? To choose a, a crime that's not going to have that mandatory consequence. So what has been the impact of uh, the this decision? Yeah, well, um, I think that was one of the questions that we wanted to investigate, which is why we um, started out this um, this immigration, this this project to investigate the decision. I think our thinking was here we are 10 years after the Padilla decision, uh, 12 years after it, by the time the article was published. Um, and we were really wondering, you know, what was the impact? And that's kind of where we set out to research that question. But I think even, you know, even at the time that the case was decided, there was a lot of debate among scholars and practitioners, you know, how big of a, how big of an impact would this decision really have? Could it, you know, really change the way criminal defense is practiced or will things continue on um, as usual? Because of course, at the time the decision came down, it was already as the court acknowledged um, accepted practice, you know, as, as the court wrote, the weight of pre prevailing professional norms at the time, like practice guides, treatises, bar rules, really supported the, the view at the time that you had to advise your client regarding the risk of deportation. But yet, as the Padilla case itself illustrated, lawyers in practice were frequently in breach of, in breach of that requirement. And so what, what has happened since? Are, are people, um, are people, are, are lawyers, um, lawyers are of course people, um, sorry. <laughs> but, um, you know, are, are lawyers following the guidelines of Padilla? Uh, what did you guys find out about that? Yeah, so our project was to look within California. You know, California is um, one of the largest states with, you know, one of the richest um, population of immigrants um, in the country and, and also one that had a tradition uh, given earlier Supreme Court decisions of providing some advising prior to the Padilla decision. So we thought this was the ideal place to really ask the question. Um, and we worked together with um, the ILRC, the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, which is a nonprofit organization in Northern California, actually, that was founded um, by Professor Bill Hing, who's also an immigration scholar. Um, and we also worked with the California Public Defenders Association, the CPDA, um, to survey both chiefs of public defender offices and lead attorneys at public defender offices in California's 58 counties. And then, um, because many offices that have many counties that have public defender offices ha have hired immigration experts, we also surveyed immigration experts um, within those offices. And then we followed up with in-depth interviews um, with people practicing in a range of positions across across the state. Um, so, in terms of our findings, I think one of the important things was really sort of mapping out how is actually 
public defense practiced in the state. Um, and this is something that can be surprising for people coming from other states, or even sometimes if you're just in one county and you're assuming that all the counties operate that way, California doesn't have a state-funded um, system of public defense. Rather, it um, the public defender system grew up in the counties and counties fund their own public defender system and decide how it's going to be structured. Um, so the first threshold question that we found is that about 58% of California counties have institutional public defenders, which is, you know, the institutional office that's headed by a chief and that hires full-time staff lawyers who are public defenders um, serve representing people in the courts. Um, but 40% have what's known as a contract model, uh, which essentially is that um, the county retains private lawyers to provide representation on a, on a contract. And just one has an assigned counsel system that's through their bar association, that's San Mateo. Um, and then once we sort of mapped out what is the public defender system, then we were able to look in more detail at the immigration advising model. And we do did find that um, while the largest counties that tend to have the institutional public defender offices have adopted the model of having immigration experts on staff. So these are people who have knowledge of the immigration law and the intersection between immigration and criminal law who are particularly versed on Padilla and the implications of Padilla and deportation defense. Um, that has become a very important model that's, a, that's evolving and growing in California. We still found um, that 16 counties had no known system for implementing um, the Padilla decision, and several just rely on informal consultations, such as talking to their coworkers or talking with immigration lawyers who practice outside of their office, but without contracting with those individuals to make it sort of a, a permanent institutional support for lawyers on immigration consequences. Um, and then a number of offices have a contract with ILRC, which is the um, nonprofit organization that I mentioned earlier that does provide uh, support and expertise in sort of this CRIM-M area to public defenders. And that's been a very, very important resource, particularly in smaller offices that might not have the level of cases or resources to hire someone on staff. Right, and so, you know, with the exception of maybe San Mateo, you know, most of the counties that uh, that don't have institutional public defender offices tend to be pretty small. So, so that's not hugely surprising. Although every so often there's a surprising county um, that that ends up in that list, um, and it's not terribly surprising. Although perhaps interesting though um, that uh, that there's a wide range of uh, practices uh, depending on which county you're in. That's, that's right. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there is some, I mean, you might just think it's, well, it's just because small offices aren't hiring experts or um, large offices are, but there is, there is variation that can't just be explained by office size and that also we document can't just be um, explained by overall non-citizen population within the state. And we and also there's variation in terms of how many immigration experts that offices have. And I, so I think an important 
uh, more nuanced finding is that offices do have a lot of discretion, as well as counties that don't have public defender offices. They have a lot of discretion regarding how that funding is used, and some are allocating funding in a conscious way to ensure that uh, Padilla is properly implemented, that non-citizen clients receive full representation, and others are, you know, sort of neglecting that duty, right? And so I think that points to a real crisis in this area and a need to really think at an institutional level of how California in particular and also other states where these sorts of issues are being replicated as the decisions being implemented um, to think about what more needs to be done. Because here we are, you know, an entire more than a decade um, past the past the decision coming down. Now, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm misremembering, but California passed a law that actually uh, went beyond Padilla. Is that correct? Well, Padilla um, was codified by the California le legislature, oh, okay. which I think is very important. And it does go somewhat, you might argue, goes somewhat beyond the decision or that they've, they've clarified the decision in a really clear way um, that is important because it's clarified that, first of all, that public defenders have an obligation to provide that affirmative, competent advice in every case involving a non-citizen, but also that prosecutors have an obligation in the interest of justice in their role to negotiate uh, regarding immigration consequences, to at least to consider the additional burden of and penalty of deportation when they are thinking about a just resolution of a case. Many, many prosecutors' offices in, in California have been leaders in this area and created their own internal office policies that really um, embody both you know, the idea that we need to treat every individual who's charged with a crime equally, the Padilla decision as well, saying that you know, lawyers have an obligation to, you know, bargain creatively around immigration. Um, but the California did make clear that this is an obligation. So I think more and more DA's offices, it's not a subject of this paper, and I encourage other people to research this area, how DA's are, um, you know, grappling with this issue and, and implementing policies on their side and hiring perhaps even their own experts. But, um, I think it, this makes clear to district attorneys that this is something that they need to consider. And that's made the role of immigration experts even more important because when we interviewed immigration experts, we heard from them again and again that their analysis that is quite sophisticated in every case in terms of how a particular charge will affect a particular individual and their immigration status is something that's really valued by prosecutors and valued by judges in determining outcomes in individual cases. Yeah, one of the big things that you know, we notice when we're in court is, you know, anytime that they take a, uh, a plea uh, agreement, uh, the judge has to inform the, uh, the person uh, copying to the plea that, you know, there can be uh, immigration consequences. Um, you know, they don't, they read it for everyone, so they don't presume um, and also they don't say whether or not they do, but they say there could be. That, that's right. And so I think, you know, we have these judicial advisals and in some localities, prosecutors might read an advisal. And those are really important that everyone who pleads guilty 
you know, receives this general information about the potential consequences. But I think the thing that Padilla did that was really important is it said that this is a specific obligation of defense counsel and that those kinds of um, additional explanations of criminal consequences that are given in court can't possibly be sufficient for the individual person who's pleading guilty because they need to understand how will this particular plea apply to my particular situation and what will be the consequences there. So um, those advisals that you see in court are important, but but you know they they really have to be buttressed by you know, knowledgeable lawyers giving this advice to their clients prior to prior to entry of that plea. And and it's actually uh, considered uh, ineffective counsel if you do not adequately advise your client now as to their uh, immigration consequences. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I think one of the things that we also learned in doing this study is really sort of understanding from the lawyers who serve in these roles. They often refer to themselves as Padilla experts or CRIM-M experts. Um, that do the Padilla advisals in their office, just how um, sophisticated and, um, you know, rich that advisal, um, you know, can be when it's done properly. Um, you know, they'll look thoroughly at an individual's immigration history, and then also look at if there's multiple pleas, look at multiple charges, look at each individual charge and what the consequences of that charge could be. And then they also work to try to identify alternative pleas that could be proposed to the prosecutor and bargained around. So, um, you know, really important work that's being done by Padilla experts around the, around the state. What surprised you the most when you started diving into this? Well, I think one thing that we, that we learned is just how much the role of Padilla experts has grown and expanded once we start to have immigration advice within public defender offices, I think the kinds of tasks and functions that neatly fit into um, that lawyer role has really grown in larger offices like um, Alameda County or Los Angeles County or San Francisco that really have model units in, into, into actual units, right? With multiple, multiple attorneys and, and, and paralegals. Um, and the work that they do includes this Padilla advisal function, um, but they also work to train lawyers in the office um, and to keep lawyers up to date, to keep themselves up to date in terms of the constantly changing immigration law. There's also important work being done on post-conviction relief. The state has created additional um, tools for pursuing post-conviction relief, which sometimes can be part of um, resolving an individual's case in an immigration neutral way that won't result in deportation. Um, and some offices have even uh, begun to represent their clients in removal proceedings. So, you know, to really get the bargain of your plea, if you if you enter a plea to something, you say you're a lawful permanent resident and this plea does not make you deportable, but the government still puts you into removal proceedings to get the benefit of your bargain it's very important to have an immigration lawyer rep represent you. And this is another area that I've done research in, and we find that very few people without lawyers are able to prevail in deportation, uh, in deportation proceedings. 
Um, so some offices such as Alameda and San Francisco then are able to follow their clients into removal proceedings and provide that same kind of zealous representation in immigration court as well. And I think that's something that you know, comes out in the piece and I think it's a really exciting development that other states can see as a model. And I think San Francisco has even gone further and appointed um, counsel to represent people in those kind of proceedings. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. Providing um, representation through the office and using, you know, a public defender's office has all of the institutional supports, right? They're, they understand um, criminal histories and they also under, now understand immigration law. So they're sort of uniquely situated to provide um, the removal defense and be appointed to represent people in immigration court. Um, this area, this, you know, CRIM-M as we sometimes call it, has, is a challenging area to practice in. Um, and it's challenging for immigration lawyers as well. So seeing public defenders take this on um, has really been, uh, been, you know, just an important resource for the clients that they represent. And, and what do you see is not working well at this point? Um, well, I mean, we do have a number of recommendations that would, you know, help to improve um, Padilla representation throughout the state. And these kinds of policy recommendations are things that could be implemented in, in other states as well. We very much see this as um, transferable to other states. I mean, California should be applauded for all of the work that it's done and really being leaders in this area. Uh, but at the same time, we do find that th there is sort of this patchwork system um, and that some counties have really lagged behind other counties. Um, and across all counties, we really think that there should be clear protocols implemented within each county's institutional system, whether it's a public defender office or contract system for how to handle non-citizen cases. What is the intake protocol? Um, what's the standard for advising? Um, you know, should outside experts be consulted with? And if so, you know, in, in what instances? Um, more training, I think, is also important. Uh, we found that you know, several even institutional public defender offices have training, but it's not mandatory. And we learned about, you know, issues, especially with having more senior lawyers attend those trainings and um, get up to speed on the current, the current standards. Of course, training is not at all a substitute for hiring experts. This is such a specialized area that um, having experts or a contract with the ILRC is something that we think no matter what is going to be necessary, but having additional training so that people can identify um, when they need to do that consultation and gain more familiarity with certain situations that come up repeatedly in, in public defender practice would be really important. Did you get a sense for why some offices lag behind other offices? I mean, I, you know, every county has its own funding structure, um, own structure for how, what, whether they even have a public defender office. Um, so I think, especially in the counties that don't have a public defender office, I think there they tend to be smaller. And I think there's a question as to whether hiring an additional person or entering a contract makes sense. It's a more decentralized system. Um, that doesn't mean that lawyers don't still need that support. So one of the There'd be many possible ways to solve that. It could be through a contract. It could be just through more awareness and training. 
Um, and there could also be the, the development of perhaps, you know, more regional experts who practice in a certain area and contract with multiple offices. Um, one of the things that we learned in, in doing the research for the piece is that California um, did create the possibility to have multi-county public defender offices. Uh, and that's something that no county has actually taken them up on to sort of join forces and create a county public defender system for several of smaller counties that are located nearby one another. But that's something that could potentially be done to sort of address this resource issue um, and be able to have larger structures that can bring in sort of appropriate supports, particularly on immigration cases. Or but even in the large, oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, or at least have like shared capacity on the immigration issue. Right, right. Um, and some some other other states like New York has also been a model in this area. Um, Peter Markowitz wrote one of the first together with uh, other nonprofits and Cardozo Law, one of the first protocols for implementing um, a system for having immigration advising within the, the state of um, New York. And there, there are precedents there for having, you know, an, an, a, an immigration expert who, who everyone in the state could call. And that could be a, another potential way or, you know, the regional person, as I mentioned, mentioned before. Um, How did you get interested in this issue? Uh, well, I mean, my research area has, you know, sort of is at this focus between immigration and criminal law. I practiced immigration law prior to um, becoming a law professor, and I was also a public defender. So I think that practice background made me interest, interested in the increasing intersection between the two areas. And for those of us who are, who are in this field, I think the Padilla decision has just been so important because of the Supreme Court's real acknowledgement of this crimmigration phenomena that, 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 that has been happening and trying to, you know, remedy it constitutionally. Do you see with a, a new court that's more conservative that this might get revisited at some point? Um, I mean, potentially, I think I mean, there, there has, there have been additional decisions that came down after the Pitya decision. And I think a lot of the questions in terms of where it applies have been uh, resolved by the court. So I'm not totally convinced that there would be a backtracking. Um, it's, you know, again, the, the court did note at the time that it already the weight of state court decisions and practice, you know, practice, um, standards by bar associations and in treatises already favored providing this kind of advising. So um, I, I think that the, that the practice standard is, is really there to stay. Yeah, and it seems like a, a relatively low level of intervention. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, to, to incorporate it into what lawyers do um, right. and what, what, it, what is normal uh, within the threshold representation is um, just, I think at, at this point now, now does really seem so basic and seems um, really, I think, I think, I think it is embraced. One of the things that we learned in speaking with the chiefs of public defender offices in the state is that, you know, California already had 
uh, Supreme Court decisions that recognize a duty to advise um, prior to the Padilla decision. It didn't go quite as far as Padilla, but when the Supreme Court actually, you know, found in such strong language that this was required, you know, people really, people really noticed and they realized that they needed to do something different, um, at least in those offices that have taken leadership roles in trying to implement something to really reflected, you know, we need to change how our office is structured in order to get this right. Any closing thoughts? Well, I really appreciate you, 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 you featuring this. I think one of the things that we wanted to do in writing this article, and I want to acknowledge um, my co-authors, Tali Geyers, Rebecca Cutlow, and Eliana Navarro-Gracian, who were students at UCLA at the time that we worked on the project. Um, I think one of the things we really wanted to do with the findings is get them get them out there into the world and have people learn about them. And we found that it can be helpful within the state of California, but also in other states, particularly those that haven't yet created a protocol for implementing the Padilla decision and haven't yet um, adopted this model of having uh, embedded experts um, to understand, you know, what is a Padilla advisal and and what what are the different roles that these experts are taking on in California? So we just really appreciate you um, highlighting the importance of the decision and the applicability of of these findings. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. It is interesting. I have noticed, you know, having covered court for fifteen years now, it um, you know, immigration was always an important issue, but it definitely became a lot more important after twenty sixteen. Um, that's absolutely that, true. And and that's been, um, you know, everybody seems to be very conscious and we didn't get to really talk about it. But, um, you know, with uh, the DA recall up in San Francisco um, uh, during the spring, one of the issues that came up was, uh, you know, the pursuit of uh, some drug cases and the point made by uh, the the former DA up there that uh, you know there were immigration considerations that people were not taking into account when when they were criticizing his office. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think I think that's why you know the California law that requires the consideration of immigration consequences is so important, um, and the offices that have taken. A leadership role there, including you know George Gascon here in in Los Angeles, you know, in adopting a strong immigration policy to consider immigration consequences is important in thinking about the role of DAs um, in the the system that we have that has for you know really too long now resulted in you know double punishment for far too many people who are convicted of crimes. It could be even minor minor crimes, right? Um, right. But 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 for, for anyone, the sanction of deportation can be far more serious than the the, the criminal than any criminal sanction, um, making you know the lawyers who are there on the front lines providing the criminal defense just crucial in um, in helping to mitigate some of that. Well thanks for coming on. Thank Amy you for having Ingrid. me. Yeah. A professor of law at UCLA talking about the Padilla decision and immigration consequences. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.
Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.